0: and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. In his debut novel, Vintage Contemporaries, Slate writer and editor Dan Coyce tells the story of the unlikely friendship of two Emilies. One Emily follows an expected path to career success and family life in New York in the late 90s and turn of the century. The other is committed to a life as an artist, a playwright working to expand the limits of that form, and this Emily fights against the capitalist insistence on rents that devour you in the city, living instead in a squatter's building for which she is responsible for a wholly different kind of society. Moving backwards and forwards in time across the horizon of the millennium, Vintage Contemporaries is a wonderfully evocative treatment of the uncertainties of idealistic youth in a very particular moment in American history. The title evokes a period in publishing before the collapse of the big houses into a monolith, when a niche series like Vintage could carry great weight in what Americans read and thought of as meaningful literature. From the inside workings of that world, Emily sees a microcosm of the country's unresolved problems, the whiteness and maleness of the career, how easily execs exploit their workers and harass them in ways direct and subtle, the narrow funnel through which new authors must travel to try and be published. But what remains for her is the power of the books and how they continue to be valuable for the readers in making their way in the world. In his Treatment of the Two Emilies, Dan asks us how the friendships of our 20s, when we are mutable and unfixed in our ways, continue to shape us when our lives have cemented and when the seemingly endless potential of career and love and family has ossified into everyday adulthood. The worlds of publishing and theater are the zeitgeist for a novel that is suffused with the culture of -of turn-of-the-century New York but which feels like a timeless accounting for what it means to grow up. Dan Coyce is the author of three nonfiction books, How to Be a Family, The World Only Spins Forward, An Oral History of Tony Kushner's Angels in America, and Facing Future, part of the 33 and one-third series of music criticism. He's a longtime writer, editor, and podcaster at Slate. He lives in Arlington, Virginia with his family. Welcome to the show, Dan Coyce.
1: Thanks for having me. Great blurb. Great
0: blurb. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's a thrill to have you here. For people of a certain age, which I believe you and I are, the the Vintage Contemporary series of paperbacks are instantly recognizable. We bought Raymond Carver's, Alice Munro's, Jay McInerney's. We were assigned them in college. They feature a boldly shadowed typeface, geometric shape surrounding a clearly hand-drawn illustration meant to capture the mood of the book. There's a plot line for this press in your novel, but what was the larger draw to this imprint, and
1: how did it shape your narrative? As For me, as it seems maybe for you, at a certain time in my life, Vintage Contemporaries, that paperback line, which was published by Random House starting in 1984, represented a very specific ideal of what contemporary literature was, it seemed to me, you know, in my teenage and early years in my early 20s as the bleeding edge of modern fiction. Um, And I say that as someone who only was just starting to understand what modern fiction was Mm -hmm. um, at that time in my life. And so I really, I mean, I really fetishized those books, Mm -hmm. I sought them out at the library, on the rare occasions that I had disposable income, I spent it on vintage contemporaries. Um, and I read just an enormous number of them. And the only context I had for pretty much any of those books, whether they were by, you know, one-shot authors um in the series like Janet Hobhouse or, or people we now think of as modern masters like Don DeLillo, my only context for those writers was that they were published by this line. That was mm-hmm. what I understood about them. And, um, you know, as I've gotten older and read more, I've come to view the line a little bit differently. It it seems now like a kind of interesting, challenging experiment in publishing. Um, one that was, that had as much to do with with marketing and design genius as it had to do with editorial genius hmm. that in its beginning was very fixed on the taste and connections of one high powered literary editor, Gary Fiskejohn you know, who's, whose taste influenced the, those first couple of lists for the book, which is why, you know, on the, on bright lights, big city, the most famous vintage contemporaries book and part of their very first list for the book that really made that, series name, the two showcase blurbs are Raymond Carver and Tom McGuane, two other <laughs> contemporaries <laughs> uh, writers and also friends of Gary Fiskejohn and, <laughs> and uh, Jay McInerney was Gary Fiskejohn's longtime roommate and best friend from Williams.
0: Oh, um, I didn't know that, that's very interesting. And so it, it started <laughs> out that way.
1: And it, so it started out not only as an answer to the kind of stultification of contemporary fiction but a continuation of the clubbiness of contemporary fiction, and then as years went on and other editors took it over, Fiskajohn left in '86. His his you know his sway over the imprint actually was pretty short. Um, it expanded in interesting ways to include um, more experimental writers, a lot more women and writers of color, um, you know, who weren't absent in Fiskajohn's era, but who weren't necessarily prioritized. Um, in a way that wasn't uncommon at all for fiction of that time or times before but um but it also it really transformed the kind of style that a lot of writers are writing in and the series became much more Mm -hmm. playful and unusual in those later years even as its sort of sway over people like me um faded a little bit as the design changed as it became less of a big deal for an author to be launched in this line the further away you got from the success of bright lights big city mm. and so i liked thinking about the line and the and my sort of dreams about it as um a, a way of me as a reader thinking a little in a little bit more of a sophisticated manner about what a novel ought to do um, and Vintage Contemporaries, my book, among many other things, is a way of me trying to write my way out of this vision of myself as a writer I had in my 20s, which is that I would be the kind of writer who would write those kinds of books. <laughs> um, and this was an attempt to, to write not that book, to think differently about if I was going to write fiction, what it was going to be like.
0: Mm. You you start the novel with an allusion to McInerney's Bright Lights, Big City. And as you say, it's it's perhaps the most recognizable, certainly of the covers for, yeah. for me. Um, the line, you are not the kind of girl who would be at a place like this at this time of night. It famously introduces in McInerney's telling a second person narration, but you are happily in the third person, why did you want to raise the specter of this particular novel, which will return again later in the story?
1: Uh, a lot of us come to New York with very specific ideas about what New York is. And Emily, who um, comes to New York from college and who came to college from Wausau, Wisconsin, um, comes to New York with this very vague idea of what it represents. And, and that idea mostly comes from the book she's read, Bright Lights, Big City, among them. And she does not fool herself into thinking that she belongs in that milieu even in this first scene which takes place in a dance club she feels painfully out of place but she's very conscious of what she is out of place in and she is simultaneously hyper aware to to the imagined New York that she thinks she ought to be living in and blind to the actual New York that she is living in it takes her a long time to understand for example that her neighborhood the lower east side is not in fact years past its best era but is, an, is at that moment in the 1990s undergoing an incredible time of cultural and political ferment um and so i wanted this i wanted this imaginary version of new york to to be what we, the first thing we see mm-hmm. in Emily. Um, the, her delusions or at least misconceptions about what life in New York would be like because the, one of the points of the novel for her, one of the things that happens to her in this story is that she, she moves out of those delusions and learns what kind of actual life in New York she can live, what kind of artistic life, cultural life, political life Uh, And what kinds of friends and relations she actually needs, um, as opposed to what she thought she was walking into when she first got there as a a somewhat unformed 23-year-old.
0: This is a story of two Emilies, one who briefly becomes M by way of distinguishing the two. And M will follow a conventional good girl path into the working world and family life while Emily will hew to the avant-garde in both her commitment to fair housing and to the arts, and also sadly in her tragic abuse of heroin. It struck me that they are in many ways two sides of the same coin, separated by the small decisions of everyday life. This was so much the case that in the first time shift that happens in the novel, I initially wasn't sure which Emily had a child. How did you want to play with this duality?
1: I liked thinking of them in that way as I was writing, even as they, they felt fairly distinct to me. I recognized the ways in which, I mean, obviously by giving them the same name, um, I was encouraging readers to see them in that way um in fact in the first draft uh it was much more unclear for much longer in that um second section After mm, in the section oh, after the first time jump how, which it was w- much it took much longer for readers to figure out which emily it was which then came to feel like a mistake readers uh many of my readers felt tricked Hmm. Um, And I, that wasn't my goal. But I did want to have at least a few pages in which you are forced to think, well, it seems it's totally possible that either of these women could have become this Emily 15 years later. And it's fun to toy with that for a moment, but not for the like 40 pages I initially toyed with it for. <laughs>
0: I, I really liked the, I didn't feel like trickery. It felt like a, a kind of signification of that while we think of these two as so distinct that in fact they are distinct in in ways that could have gone differently. And so I, I, I like that aspect of it.
1: Their paths diverge, but they also converge. Emily, the sort of wilder Emily, is committed to, as you say, her artistic, um, freedom and independence, the life of the artist, a political life. And yet, as time goes on, she sees the limitations of her unyielding worldview. She also finds herself becoming exhausted by the political life she's leading, Mm -hmm. and at times even Pulls away from it for various reasons, mm-hmm. whereas M, straight laced, boring M from Wisconsin, becomes more political as time goes on. becomes fiercely committed to the to the battle for the squats and starts to think of herself as a different kind of art maker, or at least art creator or art um, facilitator. Mm-hmm. She starts to see the value of the things that she particularly is good at, and which are editing, which is editing, um, and and sees the way that that can contribute um to her own artistic life. And so um it was fun for me to watch the ways that they came apart and came back together both you know in their physically in their friendship, the friendship breaks apart and then it comes back together again or at least has the opportunity to. And also the way in their personalities that they diverge and come together. And I think that that time jump where for a little bit of time, you're not sure which Emily it is, um, helps to drive both of those home, that they they could each have ended up in this place, which is very different from the place each of them started.
0: Mm. The novel pulls us backwards and forwards in time, beginning with 1991, moving to 2005, back to 1993, and ending in 2007. Bush to Clinton to Bush, just teetering on the Obama years, I'm sure this maps out into an important time in your own life. But what was the other attraction to this fantasy siècle end of the 20th century? The
1: structure was um, more or less lifted uh, from a great novel by uh, by Pip Adam, a New Zealand author called Nothing to See. Who I don't know knows, this one. It's a it's a gorgeous novel. Um, that I dearly wish someone in the United States would publish. Um, uh, she's her an earlier novel of hers is being published this year. Um, actually, let me check. I want to put it and plug it's Hip Adams. Hip Adam. One Adam. Just one okay. word. give me one second. Yeah. An earlier book, a great book of hers called "The New Animals" is being published by Dorothy uh dorothea publishing project this year and i'm hoping that they maybe will pick up nothing to see as well it it was nominated for new zealand's book of the year award a couple years ago it's an incredible um quite experimental novel much more experimental than mine um that that works with time in a similar way that uh takes characters leaps them forward and then forces you to figure out what's going on with those characters and who they even are um and uh hers is mostly set you know in the present and the recent past and i think the near future i was interested in this particular time for really the most facile of reasons which is just that this they were what i ended up writing about that sounds dumb let me explain that okay (laughs) i so i when i turned 40 um eight years ago i uh got i had you know a mini midlife crisis which in some ways manifested itself as our family traveling around the world which i wrote about in a memoir but which also manifested in this deep frustration i had that i had thought of myself forever as a fiction writer um i had a freaking mfa in fiction but yet i had not written any fiction in nearly 20 years um it had it, i had it had been subsumed by non-fiction and journalism the other things that i was writing but it also had been sort of scared out of me by the sense that i couldn't write the books that i wanted to write that i thought i had to write and uh um,
0: it was scared out of
1: you by the vintage contemporary sort of and by my own failure in my mfa program to write the version of those books uh at all like i just couldn't it was not it did not come to me and it didn't work and i had you know i made a I cobbled a thesis together out of a bunch of workshop stories as opposed to the novel that it was supposed to be and graduated a year late but i would not say that my mfa was like a rousing success uh and certainly not in the sense that it 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 basically stopped me the experience stopped me from writing fiction for almost two decades afterwards and then so when i turned 40 this got really frustrated me and so i I felt like the only way I was going to get back into it was to just write about times and places that felt really important to me in the very limited amount of time I had at that point. My kids were, you know, eight and 10. Um, I didn't, I had a job. And so, you know, some nights, if I had enough energy at 1045 PM, I would sit on the porch and I would like do a Linda Berry style free writing exercise. And it would be mostly memory-driven, and then I would try to spin it out and fictionalize it and find new directions for the, you know, for the, the people I was thinking of. But you know, the end result of that was that I was writing a lot about these two pretty formative times in my own life, and and one was the early to mid '90s, which was my, uh, you know, high school to college transition. Um, and the first time I ever went to New York. And one was when we first had uh, our first daughter, uh, which was the mid 2000s. And the characters I was writing about in these uh, exercises shared some experiences with me, but were different from me, lived in different places and were doing different things. But it wasn't clear to me that what I was writing was a book at all. It was just clear to me that if I kept writing at these times and exploring these places, I had enough sort of juice in my own memory to, to interestingly populate the, and, uh, and people, those places and times. And so I just kept writing them. And, you know, after about five years, I had maybe a hundred pages of random fragments. And at some point I decided, look, if I'm going to write a book, the only way that it's going to happen is if I just force you know if i make a decision if i force upon these fragments some kind of structure Mm -hmm. and i thought okay well i've got these two time periods what if all these these uh, many different characters i think i'm writing about are all the same character and i embrace the multitudes we all contain uh and figure out a way that they can just be one person and from there i just that was the book and then i I continued writing and shaping according to that totally arbitrary decision.
0: <laughs> you you really get the zeitgeist of that era of New York City. And, you know, that includes the music, the arts, you know, the books of the time. Were you in New York at that time? How was it uh, like for you trying to conjure the feel of
1: that moment? The early 90s uh, precede... 91 and 93, which is, which are the years that this book covers precede my first ever visit to New York. And so uh, only by a little bit, but they do precede it. And in those years, I mean, stuff was happening and things were changing so fast that even people living there at the time, I think often felt like they were falling behind what was happening in the culture in their own city. Mm. Um, but I first came to New York the summer of 94 when I, um, I lived at 7th and D and uh, did a summer film program at NYU. It was the summer after my sophomore year in college. And I had just broken up with my high school girlfriend or rather she had dumped me. And I was eager for a new start and a new way to think of myself. And so I seized the opportunity of a summer in New York living with my, my best friend from high school. Um, in a truly terrible apartment Mm -hmm. and walking. uh, Is there any other kind? There is no other kind. Um, This uh, It is immortalized in this novel, at least in the form of the mushroom that grew under the futon um, out (laughs) of the floor in this basement apartment. Um, But I would have walked all the way down 7th Street every day from Avenue D on the far east side of Manhattan all the way past Tompkins Square Park, cut up to St. Mark's, keep walking walk past astor place and go to nyu and the um the amount of what was going on in new york that i missed in my you know seven weeks in new york city is truly astonishing you know i was i was very focused on just making it through i was struggling through this um difficult time in my life and Struggling with not being particularly good at filmmaking and being surrounded by kids at NYU who are way more ambitious and accomplished than I was and not having very much money and being a, you know, a kid who'd come up from college in North Carolina and just didn't, didn't get it. And, you know, I had no idea that the battles for squats were happening that summer. Um, you know, in and around within blocks of where I was living. I had no idea that people were fighting for that community garden that I walked past every day. Um, I didn't understand why the bodega across the street didn't have any good food and only had like dusty bottles of squirt. And it was obviously because it was a drugstore front, but I didn't get that. And, um, and so I liked the idea of this place where everything is happening. And then putting a person there who only very slowly comes to understand all the things that are happening there. And it, she has help. She has the help of her friend, Emily, and the other people in her lives. She has the help of her roommate, Lewis, who becomes quickly involved in AIDS activism um, in the city, you know, an, a, another crisis that was happening in the city at that time. But I liked giving her a, a bunch of windows into this all this stuff that i was too dumb to notice and so i it gave me the chance to sort of go back to that era my era and a little bit before and read and listen and uh and research and think about well what was all the stuff that i could have been doing if i'd been a little bit smarter and maybe had 20 more bucks to spend uh Mm -hmm. in the summer of 94.
0: Emily, who you mention, is a is a squatter in an abandoned building that has been run essentially like a micro society with its own rules and regulations. Uh, and her building has been restored over the years by its inhabitants, but it persists as free housing basically only because of the city's willed blindness. And I I know that you sort of became interested in it because you were sort of blind to it yourself while you were living there. But what was the question that you wanted to prompt with this idea of what constitutes housing, fair housing, in in a place where housing is always so sort of
1: diabolical in the lives of its inhabitants? Well, you touched on it, I think, in your introduction, which is that Artists, particularly, the problem of housing is also the problem of what you are doing for your life. Artists tend to um, uh, live complicated lives, as the um, uh, goings-on-about-town notes always say, schedules may vary. And so they never know mm-hmm. when they're making money. They, they often don't make money. They're following uh, different passions and different muses. And so uh, good cities find ways to solve that problem because they understand that the value of artists living there and working there exceeds the importance of making sure that every apartment is, you know, rented at full market value. And so various neighborhoods over the, over the decades in New York, of course, and in many other cities have served as the cheap forgotten real estate that lots of people families um uh minorities uh people in in people in dire health situations people who who have uh, who simply can't find other housing people who choose not to contribute to capitalism in that way but also artists find places to live that allow them to live the lives that they want to live and one of the questions that the novel is really circling is what does it take to be an artist and what does it mean to be an artist and what do you need to do to be an artist and and I don't think the novel is arguing that you need to you know be a a Nabokovian asshole genius to be an <laughs> artist um it certainly doesn't serve uh Emily well for a for a lot of her life and she finds She only really finds success as a theater maker when she lets that part of her personality go. But I do think at least a little bit, the novel is suggesting that there are certain things a city needs to give you for you to be able to make art in that city. And part of the work of artists has always been seeking out the parts of the, the places they live, they can give them that. And, and part of that is fellowship, uh, and people to work with, but part of that is also Very simply, cheap space.
0: Hmm. M, who returns to being Emily after of falling out with the other Emily, discovers a largely unknown author, Lucy, who had been friends with her mother in college. Lucy's writing challenges Emily's understanding that literary fiction should be challenging, enigmatic, and perhaps desperately sad. Instead of miserable and groundbreaking, Lucy's novels end up being hits because they insist on optimism, Beautiful optimism, even when Lucy becomes terminally ill. What's your feeling about so-called serious fiction and the need for misery? And are are we beyond that era?
1: I don't know that we're beyond it. And I and I don't know that I'm beyond it. But I certainly don't think it's the only mode that... Uh, I don't think difficult and desultory is the only mode that serious fishing can operate in. And, and truly, it never... Has there's always been playfulness and fun in, um, in even you know, serious literary fiction, uh, the good stuff. And, um, I think I'm more presenting in this book an argument with myself Mm -hmm. and an argument with that idea I had once upon a time about the kind of book that I would write, um, which is not particularly a book in line with my actual sensibilities. Um, I am not a a, a particularly um, difficult, brainy, or erudite person necessarily. I don't love uh, unlocking puzzles. I <laughs> and I don't I don't love difficulty as a standard, and and I appreciate it in works that employ it well. But I think, as a person who makes things, I'm not I'm not that good at employing it. And so, um, the idea that I could write a book, the idea that Emily encounters, that she can put forth a book into the world as first an agent's assistant. And then later as an editor that, that insists upon happiness and optimism, that that can be a totally worthy reason to put something into the world, that that has something valuable to offer. Readers, um, that that is that it's not necessarily disposable; that it could be essential, um, was something I was sort of cheering myself on with through the process of writing this book, a book that that you know has sad bits, but is itself mostly pretty cheery and 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 funny and fun. Mm-hmm. I hope. And you know, in that way, it bears zero resemblance, basically, to, for example. novel i failed to write in my mfa program um which you know had like child abusers and fbi agents and um and uh an unhappy marriage and a million things about which i had zero experience and actually very little interest and instead writing this book the book that freed me in a way from what i had stuck myself in think more deeply about what these qualities in literature mean to me um, lightness and joy and happiness, and see w- what I could do using those tools, tools that it turns out I'm way better suited to using. It's funny, this this reminds me so
0: much of my conversation with Andrew Sean Greer, mm. who spent the early part of his his writing life writing difficult, uh, emotionally fraught fictions and then won the Pulitzer Prize for Less, one of the most hopeful and, and tender books of our of our era. So I, it makes me think a little bit that maybe we're seeing, you know, if not a sea change, then perhaps um, a small shift in what can be considered serious fiction, um, allowing for a kind of at least optimism, even with, you know,
1: some sadness. You know, I do think that, for example, the acclaim that Les got was a pretty signal moment in the way we think about comedy. It is not typical that comedies win those kinds of prizes and Les is purely a comedy. Like all good comedies, it has sad moments, but it never stops thinking the best of its protagonist Mm -hmm. and giving him chances Mm -hmm. to overcome his own foibles. And it leaves him in a better place. Then he began. And I wanted this book to do that. I mean, I started it for, I even read less, but certainly when I read it, I thought, oh, here's, here's a book that is doing what I wanna do. Laurie Colwyn wrote books that did what I wanted this book to do. And in fact, reading happy all the time was, was one impetus for writing in this mode. And I do think the, that the revival we've seen Laurie Colwyn's work have just in the past few years as a new generation finds it and Andrew Sean and in general a real hunger for optimism and joy on the part of, for example, a set of young readers um, who are now in their 20s and who've been dealt a particularly bad sociopolitical hand uh, Mm. and cultural hand in their lives uh, can contribute to a sense that this kind of work can be not only fun but crucial. You, you. I think you do that with
0: uh, with Emily, and in, in that you similarly to she has last... a little
1: manifesto she delivers at a book party.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's uh, and it, and it's one that that struck me. Um, and it's interesting because you don't give up on her, even though you know Emily, the artist, is not particularly a good friend, mm-hmm. and she and M part ways after a series of. Of mutual woundings. But Emily remains so impactful to Em's life. The vacillating in time allows us to see both her importance and the damage she leaves in her wake. What was it about youthful friendships that tend to have this quality and that you were interested in? Are we more tolerant then? Are we looking to be shaken out of our childish
1: selves by friends who break the mold? I think we're definitely in way more interested in expanding our field of vision in our late teens and our 20s. That seems like the point of life at that point, right? You're you are you're leaving your house, going out into the world. You're eager, I I think a lot of people are very eager to have the the things that they believed shaken up in some way. It's so, I don't know if you find this to be the case. I look back on the friendships I made in college and in my twenties and the ease with which those friendships developed, the way they just Mm. organically grew from the simple process of just being together all the time in a dorm room Mm -hmm. or in an apartment or wherever, perhaps because we didn't have anything else to do. Yeah. (laughs) You know, but those friendships were not, they didn't come out of, uh, out of a, some kind of perfect matchmaking algorithm in which we were connected to people who we have natural affinities to. They came because, you know, to take an example from my life, my two best friends in college came about because this is one of the most embarrassing things I can admit publicly. My parents met their parents at freshman orientation and they were like, you seem nice. Let's introduce our son. (laughs) And so then on the first day of college, (laughs) the first people I knew were these two guys. um, And I didn't have anyone else to hang out with. So we hung out with each other and then we just ended up being best friends for years and years and years and years. And, and we have some things in common. We also have many things not in common and ways that we are not compatible. In some cases with all of these friends broadly that I made in those years, in lots of cases, the the vast differences between us and our worldviews have have contributed to each of us. In some cases, they have ended up insurmountable and those friendships have broken up and that is its own certain kind of pain and difficulty. Um, So I was interested in both of those and how quickly you fall into those friendships at that age how instantly meaningful they are because you are forming as the friendship is forming. And it's a chance unlike any other time in your life to have someone else change you so instantly and dramatically um, as you mold yourself into that friendship because you're so malleable. And then when, because of time or circumstance or because you weren't actually that well suited to each other in the first place, or because one or both of you is unkind or, or unlucky or heads in a bad direction in their life it all falls apart and you then have to question what did that friendship mean if it couldn't last is it really a part of who i am and who i was um and those have all those things have happened to me and i don't see it written about that much hmm. i know there are writers who write well about friendship but this particular young person's friendship and the breaking of that kind of friendship. I haven't seen that a lot and it's really affected my life and so I wanted to explore it.
0: That's a really wonderful description of something I think is very true about my the the friendships of my younger self. Um, I'm interested in in the importance of angels in America in the in the novel. You happen to have written a oral history of Tony Kushner's play. And I think of it as as perhaps the the greatest treatment of the AIDS epidemic and America's failure to confront it. And the play has a pivotal role in the friendship of Emily and M. Em, but I think it resonates in other ways. Can you talk about its importance to
1: your novel? Part of it is that you can't set a book in New York City in 1993 and have its characters love literature and love theater, uh, and be involved in AIDS activism and have them not know about, or care about angels in America. Like it was, that was what people were talking about and thinking about who fit that exact Venn <laughs> diagram of interests mm-hmm. in New York in 1993, in the country in 1993. And so it, and so as a, you know, as a writer working my way through this novel, it, that was a, a kind of gift to me, right? I you, you These people had to have opinions about this thing. Um, I had this, a uh, widely known work of art that they all could bounce off of and interact with in different ways. I happen to know a lot about that work of art by spending several years writing a uh, co writing an entire fucking book about it. Um, and so it became a challenge not to overuse <laughs> angels in America uh, hmm. in this book and have it, you know, inflect everything that these these characters were going through. Um, But at the very least, I wanted them to be able to to have the experience that so many people at that particular moment had of seeing the play and then arguing about it, which is one of the joys of that of that show. It's a Mm -hmm. show about Mm -hmm. the dialectic. It's a show about argument. Um, And and everyone I talked to when I was doing that book, who was involved in it or who saw it as an audience member, their memory was We saw it and then we went somewhere and we all argued about it. And I still remember that to this moment. And I think that's really formative and it, um, and it ties very neatly into the questions that the book is asking about what does art give us the, the ability to, to experience something beyond ourselves, but, but also more simply the ability to have something to argue about with our friends, um, and, uh, and what should art do politically that the people in this book have real opinions about what kushner is doing um and those opinions map somewhat uh perhaps over neatly on what they themselves are doing in their own lives um and their own inner interactions with art and their own relationship with art and so it gave me a chance to see all these people who have these fervent beliefs um, which at the age of 23, they have not yet really had the chance to put into action because no one is actually paying them to make art yet, um, to to come into contact with someone who's been given that chance uh, to, to, to work on a huge canvas and to be incredibly ambitious and what happens when they face that kind of work.
0: Hmm. And you even have Lewis who uh, shares a name with a major player in the play and sees in himself a, a kind of frightening um, alternative self in, in in that work and has to reflect upon it as he becomes more and more involved in AIDS activism.
1: Well, my Lewis to his credit is not the Lewis of Angels in America and remains mm-hmm. committed um, for many years to the struggle and to caring mm-hmm. for uh, uh, friends and neighbors and community members with AIDS. Um, though like many people in the book, He does eventually flee New York like everyone else. Hmm.
0: Before I let you go, I'd love to know a little bit about what you've been reading and loving recently and what you might want to share with our listeners.
1: Yeah, I want to recommend three extremely great comics from last Mm. year. Three graphic novels that I truly loved. Um, I used to write about comics a lot. Uh, I, I don't so much anymore in part because comics coverage broadly is much better than it used to be. And so, um, you know, 10 years ago when I first started working in I mean, 15 years ago now, when I first started working in media, I was one of the only books writers who wrote about comics regularly in big publications. And so the, the bar to entry was much lower. I didn't have to be that good at writing about comics in order to write about them. Now there's a bunch of great critics who are un, who write thrillingly about this stuff, including in the Times and in other places. Um, so I feel like I have less to offer. But there were three books I really loved this year that haven't gotten a huge amount of attention, and I wanted to highlight them for your listeners, because I think that they will love them. Uh, the first is called The Con Artists. It's by Luke Healy. It was published last year by Drawn and Quarterly. It's a uh, totally great (laughs) semi-fictional look at a young uh, man named Luke Healy, but it's not the same Luke Healy, rest assured he says, (laughs) uh, as he notes in a very important scene early in the book in which he affixes a fake mustache to his face and then goes about telling the story of the book, (laughs) um, who gets completely snookered um by a close friend in his life someone who he thinks he understands but who he comes to believe is just using him um is he really just using him is luke uh understanding truly all that's going on to him it's sort of a caper and sort of a uh a coming of age i really liked it a lot it shares some concerns with vintage contemporaries in a friendship that um has maybe gone a little bit toxic um, that book is super fun and funny and um, surprising. I also want to recommend The Bend of Luck, um, which is by, a, I believe, a husband and wife pair, Peter and Maria Hoey. Uh, it was published by Top Shelf last year. They have a really interesting uh, art style, which sort of sort of Tom Tomorrow-y, in that the characters are... Um, they almost look like clip art, although they are clearly hand drawn and placed in certain scenarios. But they have an almost sort of mannequin esque vibe to them. But uh, the bend of luck is is a weirdly fantastical story about a world in which uh, luck is a physical object that you can mine, and it takes place in contemporary and uh, and nineteen. 19- 19th century san francisco place where mirroring the gold rush a kind of luck rush has occurred Mm. uh, as people found veins of luck out in the wilderness and fight and kill each other um, for possession of these powerful stones i really liked it as a little adventure um, and also as a meditation on what luck is because it plays an important role in our lives and we don't really understand it at all nor can we and, and finally, um, so exciting! <laughs> it's a great, uh, it's a really great book. I loved it. And finally, um, I put this one in the my top ten books of the year that I published for Slate in December. Um, but it truly is the most beautiful book I read last year, and I can't say enough for this as a story and a work of art, and also an example of thoughtful small press publishing. Um, it's called *A Frog in the Fall*. It's by a um, Scandinavian artist named Linnea Sterte. Sterte, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, S-T-E-R-T-E. It's a sort of Miyazaki-esque venture story starring a young frog who gets wrapped up with a couple of uh, neer do toads and travels <laughs> to the ocean because they all want to go to a tropical island, but really the toads don't know where they're going or what they're doing. And the frog follows them while learning a little bit about himself. It's got talking plum trees and angry chickens, um, and uh, it's it's quite lovely to look at and and whimsical and fun to read. It also is just a sort of a perfect physical object. It's um, it's done in duotone. Um, it's, uh, I'm holding it. I wish I, I wish we had pictures on this podcast. Has anyone ever invented a podcast with pictures? You could call it TV, um, but it's bound in these, um, sort of rough cardboard fine, a rough cardboard binding on the front and back. And then the, the spine is unbound. And so it's just the, you see the, the, the dark and white of the pages and the physical glue that's holding them together. It then has a, sl- a beautiful slip case. It lives inside that's a full color and shows all the characters in the book um and it's published lovingly published by a teensy tiny press called peow, P-E-O-W that um that uh published this book just last year uh, sort of as the culmination it seems of their publishing strategy um and in fact after they published the book i think in the summer um they uh they just went ahead and went out of business there. They, oh, that's if you go to their sad. webpage, right? No, they seem fine with it.
0: Oh, okay. Um,
1: <laughs> they seem totally fine. They, <laughs> they're they based in Sweden. They um, have a little thing on their website now that just says uh, Piao 2012 to 2022. It was very exciting, and they so- have sold most of the books they made. They have promised they're going to reprint A Frog in the Fall. Uh, because i think it has sold very well so that book will still exist but the rest of their stuff they're just going to let go out of print and maybe do some other fun thing in the future but the amount of care that went into the drawing and writing of this book and then into the publishing and creation of the physical object that i'm able to hold in my hand and then the way that even that i got introduced to it at a small comics festival in the Washington DC area where the guys from Piau came from Sweden and had a booth and just told people about their books. Like it to me signified all that is best about small non-corporate independent publishing, the way it discovers incredible work and and the, the love that it puts into publishing that incredible work. And so I love everything about this book for a multi- multitude of reasons, but also it's just a wonderful thing to read.
0: Now I'm going to be desperate to get a copy. I hope they're going to do that uh, further printing.
1: They say right there they plan to release a frog in the fall.
0: Good luck. Yeah, I'll be I'll be searching for it and and these other ones, which you know, you're you're my first guest to recommend graphic novels, and it's a it's a genre I love, and so I'm so happy to know these three that I have
1: not encountered before. Uh, I'm so glad they're super fun. I'm not, you know. I used to read everything in that world and now I only read a little, but, um, but boy, do I love it. And it's when you have teenagers, it's also very fun because that is, that's a mode that you can very easily uh, interact with them about their, they're often very eager to read those kinds of books. There's a much broader range of stuff that more overtly is for all ages and is suitable and fun for all ages. Um, than in, you know, in prose literature necessarily. And so that's been quite useful for me.
0: Mm, Agreed. Well, I can't recommend enough Dan's debut novel, Vintage Contemporaries. I loved it so much. I loved spending time with both Emily's. And I'm also going to plug dan's incredible family memoir how to be a family which was particularly impactful um for me and my family and so i just encourage you to to get both uh and and you you can't go wrong so dan thank you so much for coming on burn by books
1: thanks chris it was great to talk to you and it really means a
0: lot to me that you like these books Well, that's all from me for now. My thanks to Dan Coice for his wonderful insights into his own work, The Wonder of Youthful Friendships, The Continued Power of Angels in America, and so much more. You can find a link to purchase Dan's debut novel, Vintage Contemporaries, as well as his graphic novel recommendations at the website BurnedByBooks.com, which will direct you to buy from Buffalo Street Books. Ithaca's Cooperative Bookstore. At the website, you'll find all of our previous episodes and book recommendations. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books.